Following Jesus changes everything, but it will cost you everything else you are depending on. Sin has eternal consequences, so turn away from sin and turn to the Savior today and every day. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open your Bibles to John chapter 5, John uh, chapter 5. Uh, The first four chapters of the Gospel of John, John uh, makes an astonishing claim. He claims that Jesus is God, who came down from heaven in human form. And he calls multiple witnesses the first four chapters to testify to that fact, that Jesus is the one and only unique God-man, fully God and fully man, fully human. He also documents that claim by listing multiple supernatural signs. Remember, a sign points to something else, that Jesus did miracles that demonstrate his deity. And he also records the salvation of people who heard the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, believed in him as the Messiah, most notably last week the Samaritan woman, and the entire village of Sychar who came to faith in Christ as a result of her testimony and her meeting uh, with Jesus Christ. However, we're going to introduce today a major shift. John introduces a major shift in chapter 5. Opposition to the gospel is growing. Opposition to Jesus is growing, specifically by a group of people John calls the Jews. And he mentions this word, the Jews, multiple times. It's imperative that you remember that he is not talking about the common citizens of Israel when he uses the word the Jews. He's talking about the leadership, specifically the religious leadership of Israel. He's speaking of the Pharisees. We talked about them in the first week. We're here about 6,000 in number. The Sadducees, they were the the theologically liberal part of the ruling class. Uh, The scribes and the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was kind of the supreme court of Israel, the supreme ruling legislative and judicial body of the land. There were 70 members plus the high priest. This group is now planning to kill Jesus. And John introduces the third supernatural sign, which we're going to look today, the healing of the paralytic. And it says at the end of this sign, they were even more resolved to kill him, which means they had already been planning on killing him. We're going to talk about why, Lord willing, here in a few minutes. Let's pick up the narrative in chapter 5, verse 1. After these things, the events in chapters 1 through 4, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Here's the principle. More than physical health, people need spiritual life, which comes from Christ through salvation by faith. Let me say that again. More than physical health, people need spiritual life which comes from God through salvation by faith. Now, John does not identify what feast was happened to be going on at this time in Jerusalem, but he, among all of the uh, gospel writers, most of his commentary is about Jesus in Jerusalem at the times of feasts. The other three writers spend a lot more time with Jesus in northern Israel in Galilee. And Jesus has done multiple miracles at this time, And John has identified three of them so far, two of them actually, as signs that point to his deity. The first one was turning the water into wine at Cana. That was the first of Jesus' signs. And the second one was the healing of the royal official's son, which we looked at last week. Now this week comes the third sign, which is the healing of the paralytic uh, by the pool of Bethesda. 
Uh, the Sheep Gate, which is today called St. Stephen's Gate, I don't think it's on the map. It was the entrance in the wall, the old wall of Jerusalem, where sheep and lambs were brought in to the temple for sacrifice. So the sheep gate was a, an animal entry where they would bring uh, animals in for sacrifice right next to the temple. The pool of Bethesda, or the pools, by the way, the word Bethesda means house of mercy. Anyway, it was discovered in 1888, rediscovered in 1888, when they were doing repairs on the Church of St. Anne, which you don't see on the screen there, but it was right next to the pools. It's actually two immediately adjacent pools, a northern pool and a southern pool. So it's really a double pool, and there's a wall in between. The, the, the pools are right next door to the temple, just outside the temple wall. Inside the temple wall is pink. Outside the temple wall is not pink, right? The Antonia Fortress, which was put there by the Romans to try and control the crowds during Passover because things got out of hand. And St. Anne's Church, which you don't see there. Uh, some of you have been to Israel, will go to St. Anne's Church. Those of you who are going to Israel with Brian in a few weeks, you will go to St. Anne's Church. It's absolutely imperative that you get inside, you stand under the dome, and you sing. It makes your shower look like nothing. I mean, it has an echo and a resonance that is a little taste of heaven. It's the acoustics are amazing. So these two pools are actually reservoirs, and they were fed probably by an intermittent underground spring, as well as from other pools. You'll see the pool of the Jews there, as well as uh, pools from, via conduits. So they fed water into these. And these pools, just outside the walls of Jerusalem, they're in an area that was enclosed by five porticos or porches, uh, and they're connected by covered walkways. Uh, with colonnades, you know, with the um, col uh, uh, standing uh, walkways, covered walkways, kind of like a covered outdoor patio. I'm trying to give you a word picture of what they look like, where you could sit and rest in the shade. And many people congregated to these pools, blind, lame, paralyzed. He just gives you kind of three examples. The Greek word here is invalid, where we get the word disabled, and it means those who suffered from debilitating illnesses, generally for a longer period of time. Now, this is, interestingly enough, John does nothing by accident, this area is a physical picture of the spiritual condition of the human race. We are debilitated and disabled by sin, and we are maimed and marred by sin, and we're unable to help ourselves, and we're going to find out some people have been here for decades. As a matter of fact, we know that all physical illness and sickness and death is a result of sin entering the human race in the Garden of Eden. So this, this is a physical picture of a spiritual reality. Now in your Bible, I want you to look at the last half of verse 3 and, and all of verse 4. They're probably bracketed. The last half of verse 3 has a bracket until you get to the end of the verse 4, and that's also in brackets. That's because there's no extant Greek manuscript before 400 AD that contains these words. So the description of an angel stirring up the waters, most conservative scholars believe that that's not in the original text. They believe that has been added by a scribe later on, 4th, 5th century, seeking to explain the paralytic's response to Jesus' question. Here's why we don't believe that that's part of the original text. The Bible never records any miracles that involve angels being the source of healing. Never happens. In Scripture, God himself is the sole source of healing, and he always heals individually and specifically. Apparently, there was a superstition at the time that only the first person in the pool would be healed. Now, God never heals a crowd on a first-come, first-served basis. That's not how God does business. Um, whoever can push their way to the front of the line gets healed, and everybody else gets left behind. That's not how God works. That's not the God of mercy and God of grace. So we don't believe that this particular last half of verse 3 and all of verse 4 is in the original text, and it's there for a reason. However, historically, mineral springs, geothermal hot springs, medicinal baths have been frequented by millions of people on a regular basis because it's thought and has proven to have some healing properties. So there's a reason why all these people are here. It happens to be... Uh, uh, an intermittent, probably, mineral spring underneath there that's partially responsible for the water flow. Verse 5. A man was there who had been lying, who had been ill for 38 years. 
when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me in the pool. When the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well, picked up his pallet, and began to walk. Almost parenthetically, the last half of verse 9 says the very significant phrase, quote, now it was the Sabbath on that day. Here's our principle. Following Jesus changes everything, but it will cost you everything else you are depending on. Following Jesus changes everything, but it will cost you everything else you are depending on. Now, this particular individual is singled out by Jesus and therefore noted by John as having been lying in that location for 38 years, probably since childhood. We don't know anything else about how he, why he got sick, when he got sick. He could have been there at 20 years old, 25 years old. I don't know whether it was an accident. don't know whether it was congenital. Scripture doesn't say, but he's been sick for 38 years, a paralytic, unable to walk lying on his bed. Now, 38 years is a long time, it's, especially when you're sick. It's 456 months. It's 13,870 consecutive days of waiting to be healed. I'm not a terribly patient person. You know that. 13,000 days of suffering is a long time. We're not told exactly what his malady is, but apparently it prevented him from getting from his place into the pool before somebody else did. This guy has lost all hope of being healed, and it says a very significant phrase, Jesus saw him lying there. Jesus is omniscient. He already knew how long he'd been in that condition. He knew why he was there. He knew his state of mind. Jesus has already demonstrated supernatural knowledge. Remember back in the first four chapters, he said, Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree when the village was out of sight. And he told the Samaritan woman, bring your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right, you've had five. And the one you're living with now is not your husband. So Jesus has supernatural knowledge. Well, we would expect that because he is God. And God is omniscient. The critical thing is, is that the man didn't know who Jesus was, but Jesus knew who he was. All of you here are here only because Jesus knew who you were before you knew who he was. And if you went to the sermon service this morning, you understand that you have been chosen, elected in him before the foundation of the world which is incredibly mind-boggling, but nothing happens by accident because everything comes under the sovereignty of God. Jesus knows every one of our names. And by the way, every person you're praying for every week, Jesus knows their name too, and he is always working. You and I cannot see him working, but he is working, so you keep praying for those people that need to know Jesus Christ as their Savior because eternity is in the balance. And Jesus asks him what appears to be the most obvious question in the world. Do you wish to get well? Well, duh, it's been 38 years, right? Now, it's a conversation opener. Jesus says to the woman at the well, can I have a drink? Right? It's a conversation opener. But this question reveals a huge set of deeper issues. This man is disabled for 38 years. And Jesus asked him a question that you would think would be, well, who wouldn't want to get well? Well, let's think about that. Every time you make a significant change in your life, there is cost and there is benefit. You make the change because you want the benefit, but we almost never count the cost. We embrace the benefit, but we try and ignore the cost. I went to see a cardiologist five years, six years, seven years ago. My mom had a triple bypass at 65, and I thought, well, it's time to get the ticker checked out. And he said, 
you're fine, you have a heart murmur, 30% of people have a heart murmur, it's no problem. But at any rate, what's interesting is he says, it's a good thing you have a set of healthy habits. I says, why is that? He said, 95% of the people that see me at your age will not change their habits even if it's going to kill them. They will continue to do the diet and exercise and stress and sleep and everything they've always done. And I, I was speechless. I said, you're kidding. He said, no. Change is hard. It's very difficult. And Jesus is asking this paralytic, after 38 years, are you willing to stop begging, stop complaining, and go get a job full-time? Are you ready to repent from your sin that you are practicing even right now and turn to God for a new life? See, many people want to get rid of the negative consequences of their behaviors, but they don't want to change the behaviors themselves because the behaviors themselves have benefits. Here's an interesting quote that convicts me. James Baldwin writes, quote, Nothing is more desirable than to be released from an affliction, but nothing is more frightening than to be divested from a crutch. Many people hate their afflictions, but they love their crutches. If this man was made well, he'd have to stop complaining, start working, stop blaming, and stop sinning. And some people love their sin so much, they'll risk their health, their freedom, their families, and even their lives rather than give up their sin. I went to school with a guy who had gotten in 13 automobile accidents before age 20. Apparently, he loved to drink and drive more than he feared the car accidents. I have no idea if he's still alive. If he didn't change his behavior, I would be amazed. Doing the same activities and expecting a different outcome is a form of insanity, right? You know the drill. So now you know what to do, right? Okay. Interesting. Jesus asked a question, and the paralyzed man doesn't say he wants to get well. He believes superstitiously that his only chances of getting well is getting into the waters before anybody else does. And the reason that he couldn't get in first is that no one would help him. So, I mean, given the size of the crowd around the pool, you can understand why being first in the water is understandable. Here's the key insight. After 38 years of trying, his system of getting healed is a failure, would you say? So quit already and try something else. Folks, if it's not in God's word, if you've been trying something for 38 years and it hasn't worked out, for heaven's sakes, try something else. Someone once said, quote, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. After that, quit. There's no use being a fool about it. <laughs> There's truth to that. There are some things that wisdom and God says you need to stop doing. Yes? We think persevere, persevere, persevere. No, sometimes you should quit. Like sin. Just quit. Right? This guy thinks he needs human help to get into the pool. He doesn't need human help. He needs divine healing. And Jesus does not continue this conversation. He doesn't commiserate with him. He doesn't say, it's so tough. Let me come alongside you and feel your pain. He doesn't do any of that stuff. He issues a three-part command. Get up, pick up, and walk. This man's been waiting for 38 years by a pool that's supposed to have healing properties, our Lord Jesus Christ comes, the God who spoke the universe into existence with the words of his mouth, and he heals this man instantly with a word. Get up. This is the very thing he's been unable to do for 38 years. Here's an interesting application. When God issues you a command to obey, he always gives you the power to do what he tells you to do. So when God commanded this man to get up, he gave him the power and the healing to get up. If God wants you to stop doing something or start doing something, he'll give you the ability to do it, so you can't use that excuse. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says what? No temptation has overtaken you, but such is this common demand. You know what that says? Your temptations ain't special. We all got them. Lots of them. 
Everybody gets tempted. Welcome to the human race, sinful and fallen. No temptation has taken you over you, but as such as is common to man. And God is faithful. Who what? Not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. If you're addicted to something, and I don't necessarily mean street drugs, if you're addicted to attitudes, if you're addicted to actions, if you're addicted to a critical spirit, if you're addicted to the fruits of the flesh in Galatians 5 as opposed to the fruits of the spirit, you can stop it because you have the power of God to do it. You have to depend on him moment by moment by moment by moment, and most of the battles are in your mind. Because Satan will always tempt us where he thinks he can get us, and that's where we do warfare with the Word of God. You know the Word of God, and I've quoted the Word of God to Satan until I'm blue, but you have to know the Word of God. If you're going to wield the sword of the Spirit, you have to know how to handle the sword of the Spirit. He says, get up, and he gives him the strength to get up. He says, take up your bed. Don't save your spot by this pool, brother. You ain't coming back here again, right? And they, 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 this bed or pallet, it's a small mattress made of straw. That's what a poor person would lie on, and you could pick it up and carry it. And he said, walk. Now, that was proof positive that the paralysis had been instantly healed. When God commands something to occur, does it happen? It does, immediately. He became well, picked up his pallet, and began to walk away from the pool just as he was commanded. What is amazing is he never expressed faith that Jesus would heal him. He never even asked to be healed. But Jesus did it anyway. This is a partial picture of what God does spiritually for those who will believe in him. What does Ephesians 2 say? Even when we, you and me, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. God made us alive together with Christ, right? So spiritually speaking, it's a much greater miracle. We were dead. A dead person has no response to stimuli. We had no response to God before the Spirit of God came in us and gave us the new birth and gave us regeneration, really, new life, and we were able to respond. This is a small physical picture of a giant spiritual reality that you and I are testimony to because we have experienced it. And God has many people in your life that want to experience it yet. Verse 10. So he's walking. The Jews were saying to the man who was cured, quote, it is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered and said, he who made me well was the one who said, pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Here's the principle. Religion enslaves people to man-made rules that will send them to hell. Only Jesus can set people free and give them eternal life. Religion enslaves people to man-made rules that will send them to hell, only Jesus can set people free and give them eternal life. So the religious leaders here, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the Sanhedrin, they were like the Taliban in Muslim countries. They were the religious police. And there apparently was a patrol of Pharisees walking the streets looking for Sabbath infractions, and they observed this man carrying this lightweight pallet, and they issued him a warning, kind of a fix-it ticket, right, by the police. You are forbidden to carry your pallet on the Sabbath because it violates God's command not to work on the Sabbath. Now, here's a guy who hasn't worked in 38 years, and the very first day he picks up a pallet and walks. He's being accused of doing too much work. No kidding. I mean, it's amazing, you know? Now, God did command the Israelites not to work on the Sabbath day because he said, I want you to rest because... I rested from my creation on the seventh day, creating the heavens and the earth. You have to understand that over the centuries, the Jewish religious leaders have literally added thousands, thousands of man-made rules and regulations in addition to the law given to Moses. There were literally 39 categories of non-permitted, quote, work. Categories and hundreds of regulations. For example... 
I could go on for weeks, but I'll give you three or four. To walk on grass on the Sabbath was forbidden because it was considered to be a form of threshing, which would be work. Even today, it is not permitted to bathe with soap, bar soap. Liquid soap is fine because bar soap is work. You're scraping the soap on your body. A religious Jew today is not allowed to push an elevator button on the Sabbath because that is considered work. So in Israel, if you've been there, the kosher elevators on Sabbath are automatically set to stop at every floor. So you just get on and it'll automatically, because you're not initiating work. The elevator's working, but when you push the button, you're making something else work, and that's considered to be a Sabbath infraction. When Antiochus Epiphanes attacked the Jews on the Sabbath day in Jerusalem, he invaded the city. Thousands of Jews died because they refused to defend themselves because defending themselves was considered work. And they would rather die than break a Sabbath regulation. This should break your heart. This is just bondage. And Paul was absolutely livid about this. He said to the Galatians, don't let anybody steal your freedom in Christ and go back to these man-made regulations which cannot save you. Keeping man-made rules to earn God favor is a form of religious slavery. It's really a method of controlling people by threatening them with eternal punishment if they don't follow the rules that, quote, the leaders made up. This religious slavery is epi epidemic today. It's everywhere. You not only see it in formal religions or cults. I mean, you can look at every world, major world religion except Christianity, and it is comprised of man-made rules that you are expected to follow in order to earn God's favor. And we have that today. We have the worship of Mother Earth. That's a religion. We have the altar of political correctness. That's another religion. And they're all man-made rules. First of all, understand, no human and no institution has the gate key to heaven. And none of them. So when anybody says, do this, and you'll please God, and it's a man-made regulation, baloney, or something like that. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Amen. Secondly, most of the time, legalistic leaders don't even follow their own rules. Jesus called out the Pharisees, for hypocrisy on multiple occasions. If you really want to get your stem wound, read Matthew 23, and it'll wake you up nearly from the dead. So this man, he's been walking. He's bought into their rules. And so when they confront him about it's not lawful for you to walk on the Sabbath, he doesn't say, that's not true. He explains that he's the only reason he's carrying his, his mat is because the man who healed him told him to carry his pallet. The Pharisees' response, the Jewish leadership, they only care that he's walking illegally, right? Not that he's walking due to a miracle. I mean, this guy's been lame for 38 years, and everybody knows it. And now he's walking, and they're upset because he's walking on the Sabbath, not that a major miracle's been done, and he's walking at all. That's what happens with legalism. You miss what God is up to because God doesn't conform to your rules, right? So they demand, who told you to walk on the Sabbath day? And this man has never bothered to find out because they said Jesus slipped away. Verse 14. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Here's the principle. Sin has eternal consequences, so turn away from sin and turn to the Savior today and every day. Sin has eternal consequences, so turn away from sin and turn to the Savior today and every day. Now, we don't know why this guy's in the temple. We hope that he's in the temple giving thanks to God for the miracle of his healing, but the scripture doesn't say. We do know that he's a religious slave 
of the Pharisees' legalism, so he may well have been there following a man-made prescribed set of rules and rituals. But imagine this. You're in the temple, you're following the man-made rules, and the Son of God comes in to you and looks you in the eye and says, you have become well, stop sinning, or something worse will happen to you. I would think that would turn your hearing aid on full blast. Not all illnesses are directly related to personal sin, although sin is the ultimate cause of all illness in the Garden of Eden. Interestingly, a few chapters from now, we'll get into John 9, and Jesus saw a man who was born blind. And his disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that this man would be born blind. And Jesus said, quote, It was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And as you recall, and Jesus opens his eyes. Now, that case was a case of illness not related to specific sin. This man's 38 years of paralysis was a consequence of some sin. And Jesus said, you're still sinning. Stop it. Or something worse is going to happen. Well, you think, what's worse than 38 years of paralysis? Well, hell might be one. Right? He's saying, you need to stop sinning, or if you don't repent, something far worse than 38 years of paralysis is going to happen. Now, we don't know what his sins were. They're not mentioned. We, um, we do know that Jesus Christ, who knows everything, told him to stop. It could be that he is trusting in man-made religion to save him. If you're trusting in man-made religion to save you, you're in sin. Because you're saying the cross of Jesus Christ is insufficient to pay for your sin. You have to earn it through your righteousness. And what God says about self-righteousness is it is filthy rags and it is completely unacceptable because his standard is perfection and you ain't. There's no mention of this guy turning away from his sin. There's no mention of him of trusting in Christ, the Messiah, and humility and faith. He doesn't even thank Jesus for the healing. Wow. And of course, I can get on my hobby horse and say, how ungrateful, and then the Holy Spirit taps me on the shoulder and says, how many blessings have you had today before noon that you have not thanked me for? Many? Many? I'm trying to develop the habit of thanking God for hot water in the shower. Every day, I'm trying to do that. If you don't have hot water, the next time it comes on, you'll be grateful, right? So, you know, just saying. This man is so blinded by religious legalism that he turns around and informs the Jewish leaders that Jesus is the one who made him well. And he knows that they will attack Jesus and maybe kill Jesus as a result. It's pretty common knowledge. This man, who Jesus helped, turns out to be a Judas, a betrayer. And here's what's utterly congruent with our Lord. He knows that this man will turn him in. And yet he loves him enough to warn him, stop sinning and repent. So Jesus uses this miracle once again to demonstrate the deity of Christ, but he also uses it to introduce the wickedness of the Jewish religious authorities. By the way, it's a lie from hell to tell someone that if you obey a series of man-made rules and rituals and regulations, you can earn God's favor and pay your entrance into heaven. God's standard is perfection. We know that. And all of sin, no one makes that. No one makes that standard. That's why Jesus came, the perfect God-man, fulfilled God's law perfectly and died in the sinner's place to pay the penalty for their sin. There are a number of very well-known world religions that believe that Christ's sacrifice is insufficient. You have to add to it. And that is from hell. That is not the word of God. The Jews are trying to kill Jesus for two primary reasons. First of all, he's breaking the Sabbath. Their Sabbath rules by healing people on the Sabbath, which they regard as working. Every gospel writer mentions the fact that Jesus healed people and interestingly enough, he deliberately heals them on the Sabbath, on purpose. And the Jews persecute him for doing so. 
he, Luke 14 records that he's in a, the Pharisee's home, and there's a man with dropsy. And he heals the man with dropsy. And, of course, they lose their cookies. And Jesus said to them in Luke 14, 5, quote, Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well or a ditch and will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? Verse 6, and they could make no reply to this. Even the Pharisees would rescue an animal if it fell into a pit. How dare they criticize the Son of God for healing a human being made in the image of God on the Sabbath day? The Jews would circumcise their sons on the Sabbath. Jesus said, how much more should I make a whole man or a whole woman well on the Sabbath? What's astonishing is that they were angry over a miracle. Someone's been healed, and they're far more concerned that it took place on the Sabbath than it occurred at all. It's interesting that Jesus once did a miracle, and the leader of the synagogue said, tell him to come back tomorrow and be healed. He doesn't need to do it today on the Sabbath. Folks, religious legalism is damnable. It blinds the mind. It creates an enormous amount of self-pride, and it is against the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, the origin of these Jewish Sabbath laws was legitimate. The origin, it was the fourth commandment, Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Pretty legitimate. It's the longest of the Ten Commandments. So the origin of the Shabbat, the Sabbath laws, especially on resting, was legitimate. The Sabbath, by the way, means rest. The Jewish logic was that because God rested from his work of creation on the seventh day, so we also must rest. That's legitimate logic, right? So this command is mostly about ceasing to do the activities of your normal job on the Sabbath. Jesus responds to them, their charge of Sabbath breaking, not on the basis of what he was doing, but on the basis of who he was, verse 17. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Because Jesus, here's the principle, because Jesus is God, he works like his Father works and is not subject to man-made rules. Because God is God, he works like his Father works and is not subject to man-made rules. Let me digress just a bit. We go, that's true, and yet... We try and tell God what to do all the time. Oh, God, please do it my way. Oh, God, you know that so-and-so needs blah, blah, blah. That's my perception. And I would be so blessed if you would just do it my way and, and do respond to my prayer, right, the way I'm praying. So the Jews are persecuting Jesus. Remember, I'm talking about the religious leaders here because Jesus claimed to be God. And this persecution ultimately ended in the cross, but right now it involved challenging and heckling and questioning and confronting him because they were hoping to discredit Jesus in front of the crowds because Jesus' crowds were bigger than their crowds, and these folks were pretty jealous, and so they were already plotting to kill him. Jesus defends his healing, his working on the Sabbath day, by uh, stating God's constantly at work even on the Sabbath. And therefore, since God is working, therefore the Son of God must be working as well. So what infuriated the Jews, the Jewish leaders, more than that was the fact that Jesus said, my Father is God, meaning I am God's Son. My Father is a term of intimacy. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a blood family relationship. When you talk about your father, your dad, as Andrew was talking about this morning. The Jewish religious leaders might say, our father, or our father in heaven, but they would never say, my father. That was a, a level of intimacy that was too great. I understand that. 
because God is holy and he is in heaven and we are on earth and, he is, and we are sinful. So I understand that. But Jesus is saying from all eternity past, I have had the same nature as my heavenly father and I am equal with God because I am God. In John 10, 30, Jesus made it very clear. He says, I and the Father are one. So an earthly son has the same nature as his earthly father, but he is a distinct person from his earthly father. Same with the daughter. So Jesus is God, and Jesus says, you can't criticize me for working because I'm doing just what my heavenly father's doing. So it begs the question. In what sense is God still working, even on Shabbat? Well, we know that God created the universe. We also know that he works nonstop maintaining it and keeping it operating. Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The universe functions the way it does because God constantly is inputting his willful, purposeful, designing energy into it. Hebrews 1.3 says, He upholds all things by the word of his power. John, I mean, Psalm 19.1, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands, day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So the natural laws that God instituted to operate and organize and keep his universe running are themselves maintained by creator God continuously. The perfectly operating universe that we live in is absolute testimony to the artistic and engineering design of God as well as his active management. Romans 1 says, no one has an excuse to not believe in the God of the Bible because they can open their eyes and see and observe the universe at work operating perfectly according to his design. So you have lots of testimony for which you are held accountable, Romans 1. Here's what's intriguing. God only not only works with things, his universe, he works with people. And he cares for people. Israel is in bondage in Egypt, enslaved for 400 years. God calls Moses at the burning bush to do what? Lead them out of Egypt. And God prefaces the call in Exodus 3-7 by saying, The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their suffering, so I have come down to deliver them. Romans 8.28 And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What's important for us to remember, it's easy to think that, yes, God is mighty. He is, but he's also merciful. God is infinite, and he is, but he's also personal. He says, I have heard the cries of my people. There is no prayer that you pray ever that God does not hear. You're never going to get a busy signal when you talk to the Lord. He doesn't have to put you on hold. There's nobody ahead of you in line. He doesn't ever tell you to call back. You can talk to him at 2.30 in the morning, and he is listening because he's your father. He loves us. The infinite God of the universe knows our brokenness. He knows where we crack and leak and trip and fall and struggle. He knows that. And he says, I've come down to deliver them. He does the same for us. God is the, cause, is the cause behind every effect. So you look at the giant universe. The universe is one giant effect, and God is the ongoing cause behind the universe and everything in it. There is no subatomic particle that moves that God does not control. When you go home today and you pop a Coke, a Diet Coke, and the fizz comes out and the bubbles pop and spray, God knows every one of those bubbles and where they're going before it happens. When you drive down a dirt road and the dust goes, shh, God knows where every dust particle is going. Before it happens, there is nothing that happens without his control. There is no such thing as chance. 
Everything comes under the sovereignty of God. And he's personally involved in every aspect of his universe. God the Father and Jesus the Son both work 24-7, 365. And they never get tired. Isn't that good to know? Psalm 124, 121 verse 4. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. When you call God, he's never napping. He's always alert. Now, even the Jewish leaders couldn't argue that God works on the Sabbath. I mean, if God stopped working, the universe would cease to exist. So Jesus says, if you accuse me of work breaking the Sabbath, you are accusing God of breaking the Sabbath because he is my father and he works continually and so do I. So they understand that Jesus is claiming to be God who came down from heaven and they regard this as blasphemy worthy of death and that's why they try and kill him. Jesus claims to be God, and his enemies believe that he's claiming to God. The real issue is, is that claim accurate? Is Jesus who he claims to be? If Jesus is God, then you would expect him to act like God, right? Demonstrate divine power and authority over disease, over death, over demons, over nature. Does he do that? Yes, the Gospels are loaded with examples of miracle after miracle after miracle. He fulfilled over 700 Old Testament prophecies when he came at his first coming, 300 rather, and we've got hundreds more that he's going to fulfill at his second coming. Yes, he's documented and demonstrated that in fact he is God. If you're going to follow the God of the Bible and Jesus Christ his son, you're going to have to give up man-made rules to please God. We walk by faith and we stand by faith. And we trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, not on our ability or anybody else's ability to, quote, keep the rules. So let's take a look at us. It's terribly easy for me to get self-righteous and go to this paralytic and just thrash and trash him. But I'm convicted that I'm probably more like him than I'd like to admit. I have been ungrateful. That was one of the crimes that God lists in Romans 1. They were not grateful. They did not give thanks for what God has done. I still struggle with the notion that God is more happy and loves me more when I do what is right and loves me less when I do what is wrong. That's a lie. He cannot love you more. He cannot love you less. But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still at war with him, Christ died for us. We stand by grace and grace alone. So that John is now shifting. He's introduced another miracle to demonstrate the deity of Christ, but he's now going to show the opposition of humans who are wicked, who want to impose their man-made regulations on others, he's going to demonstrate the evil that comes through that. The next couple of weeks, we're going to pick up the narrative in chapter 5, verse 19, through the end of the chapter. Anytime someone says, Jesus never claimed to be God, you turn them to John 5. He is very explicit, which we're going to go through, Lord willing, in the next two weeks, maybe three, about his claims of deity and why he claims what he claims. When you read chapter 5, you will chew on that for the rest of your life. That's how much meat is in this chapter. Okay, let's summarize and then we'll do prayer and praise. Principle number one, more than physical health, people need spiritual life which comes from Christ through salvation by faith. By the way, if you've been physically healed, praise God for his grace, you're still going to die. <laughs> it's going to happen. But you never spiritually die once Jesus Christ has paid your death, your death penalty, literally, taking, taking your penalty on the cross upon himself. Number two, following Jesus changes everything, but it will cost you everything else you are depending on. If you ask God what crutches are in your life, I think he'll tell you. You may not want to know, but he will tell you. So you can depend solely on him. 
Number three, religion, law-keeping, man-made law-keeping, enslaves people to man-made rules. That will send them to hell. Only Jesus can set people free and give them eternal life. By the way, let me just say a sidebar. Coming to Christ does not mean you can do whatever the flesh tells you to do. But as a Christian, we no longer obey the Lord trying to earn his approval. We obey him because we want to. We obey him out of love because he's given us a new nature. He's given us his life. So we want to do what is right in his sight, not under coercion, but out of love and gratitude. So we do live holy lives, but the motivation behind it is completely different than someone who's obeying the rules, trying to buy their way into heaven. Four, sin has eternal consequences. So turn away from sin and turn to the Savior today and every day. I said today and every day because we come one particular point in time at the point of salvation. But every time we sin, we come back to Jesus, right? I come back to Jesus dozens of times a day. Because my brain goes where it shouldn't go, and I have to say, Lord, I'm sorry, and I go back. What does God say about this particular situation? Because my opinion about a subject is worthless. What God says about a subject is everything. And lastly, because Jesus is God, he works like his Father works and is not subject to man-made rules. Okay, it's a lot to absorb. Thank you for your attention. Please read the Bible yourself. Read these chapters yourself. Ask the Holy Spirit to teach you. He is so faithful. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.